Well, winter has officially arrived three days ago on December 21st, the winter solstice. For those of you who uh, moved here to Houston this past year from somewhere up north, you're probably wondering if it was ever going to get cold. And yeah, this is, this is about it. This is uh, as winter as it gets for us here in Houston. You've been waiting for the arrival of winter, but I think some of you, if I'm accurate, have already been experiencing a winter of sorts. Call it a spiritual winter of the soul. Did you know that there are seasons of the soul? Most Christians can recall summer seasons in their past where they've experienced significant spiritual growth, where there was significant spiritual joy in their lives. Those were days of fruitful ministry. Those were days when you had a clear sense of God's presence in your life. Those, those are cherished seasons in the life of a Christian. But summertime never lasts forever, even in a spiritual sense. Winter always seems to come around. And we all face these seasons of the soul where your heart feels cold. It feels cold towards God, towards God's people where you don't see much spiritual growth in your life, when you're, when you're struggling day to day with the same old sins, and when you're facing unending disappointments in life, when God himself feels distant, maybe even absent. Those are spiritual winters of the soul. Now some of you, some of you here may be in that moment. Some of you here are there right now, and you might even be on the verge of giving up on the faith. You might even be on the verge of giving up on God. Maybe some of you are here this morning simply because you're just back home for the holidays, and you're staying with family, and you've come here to church with family because that's just what you do on a holiday like this. Maybe some of you grew up in this church, and you can recall those spiritual summers that you experienced back in the day, here growing up, but now your faith is in a much different place, a much colder place, a much more dreary place. Well, friends, I, I believe that God has brought you here for a reason. I believe that he has a word for you in this morning's passage. You may have noticed as it was read that there are two main imperatives, two main exhortations in our text. Actually, the, 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 uh, the main one has two prongs to it. If you notice, we are told to do two things that really just boil down to one thing. We're told, if you look in chapter 4, verse 14, to hold fast our confession, and there in verse 16, we are, we are told to draw near to the throne of grace. So we are exhorted to hold fast to our faith and to draw near to God, which boils down to simply saying, don't give up. Don't give up on faith. Don't give up on God. Hold fast and draw near to him. That's, I believe, his word to you. Now, I realize some of you, you, you feel like you're personally in a, in a spiritual summer right now, and so you don't really relate to this. Well, you know, there might be a word of the Lord here for you 
that he wants you to go share with someone else. Maybe there's someone in your life going through a winter. Or maybe God just wants you to carefully listen so you can prepare when a spiritual winter eventually comes knocking at your door. Because it always does. So no matter what season you're in personally, I believe there's a relevant word from the Lord for you. And so what does God want to tell us? What does God want to tell people who feel like their faith is stuck in a spiritual winter? What does he, what does he want to remind us? Especially for those who are on the verge of, of just letting go and giving up. Well, he wants to remind us that in such a time, we have a priest to turn to. We have a priest to turn to. And he's not just any priest. He's a high priest. He's not just any high priest. He is a great high priest. I want to introduce him to you this morning. He's described in our text in three different ways. And so if you want to follow along, we're going to look at these three things. And there's an outline in your bulletin. And we're going to see first that the high, he's the high priest that we've all been waiting for. Second, he's the high priest who sacrificed for us. And third, he's the high priest who sympathizes with us. So I'm going to start by arguing that all of us have been waiting for a high priest. All of us need a priest. Which I know sounds strange for most of us because most of us didn't grow up with priests, right? We had pastors, ministers, elders. Priests are, you know, for those Israelites. Priests are for, for Catholics. We're, we're Protestant Christians. You know, we, we believe in the, in the priesthood of all believers. We don't, we don't need priests. We have direct access to God. Well, we don't need to go through someone to get to him. Actually, that's not true. You'd be mistaken to think that you don't need a priest. Our passage makes it clear that you and I still need a priest. We have to go through another human being to get to God. But not just any human. He's identified for us in verse 14 as Jesus, the Son of God, who became a son of man. That's what Christmas is about. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. That's anointed one in Greek. He's the Messiah. That's anointed one in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, there was this well-recognized expectation that God would send a kingly Messiah to deliver his people. Israel's hope and consolation rested on a son of David, this kingly figure who was going to arrive one day to conquer all of their enemies. That was the, the, the major theme within the Old Testament. Now, there was also a minor theme within this messianic tradition about a, a coming priest, about a priestly Messiah. And these two messianic traditions, they ran parallel to each other for years until finally here in the book of Hebrews. This here is the first time someone brought these two traditions together and argued for their fulfillment in one person. The author here is the first to claim that Jesus is not just this coming king, he is a coming priest. But of course, this raises a, a rather sticky theological problem for the author of Hebrews, because in the Old Testament, there's already this long history of Israelite kings overreaching, 
presumptuously performing the duties of a priest, and each time they did it, they, they paid for it dearly. There was King Saul, who lost his throne because he tried to make a sacrifice by himself instead of waiting for Samuel. And then there was also Uzziah, who was struck with leprosy for the rest of his life because he dared to enter the temple himself to burn incense, thinking that he could do the work of a priest. The author explains for us in chapter 5, verse 1, and in verse 4, that high priests were never self-designated. You can't just make yourself one. They were always chosen. They were appointed to the task. So a king can't just make himself a priest. They have to stay in their lane. Kings rule, priests sacrifice. You do your thing. You stay in your lane. But here in Hebrews, King Jesus is now said to be doing the work of a priest. Now, we know he's not from the tribe of Levi, which is where all priests came from. Only Levites could serve as priests. We also know he's not a descendant of Aaron. That's the designated family for the high priests. We know that he's from the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant of David. And so, yeah, it appears he's, he's totally fit to be a king, but not a priest. And so how can he be both? Well, friends, this is where the author of Hebrews shines as a master exegete, a master interpreter of Scripture. Listen to chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, and listen to how he weaves two strands of messianic tradition together in the one. He says in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So his point here is that Christ did not make himself a priest or or presumptuously adopt for himself the role of one. Like any good priest, Christ was called by God. He was chosen. He was appointed to the task. The author first quotes uh, from Psalm chapter 2, which was a very well-known messianic psalm about God appointing a chosen kingly son. And then he quotes from Psalm 110, which was another messianic psalm about God appointing a chosen kingly priest from the order of Melchizedek. Now, that right there is a a reference to a rather mysterious figure in the Bible. He only shows up here in, uh, shows shows up in, here in the the New Testament, but it only shows up in a reference to him in the Old Testament in Genesis, chapter 14, verse 18. He's identified there as the king of Salem, and that's traditionally understood to be Jerusalem. And so he's also identified as a priest of God Most High. And so apparently what happened is that when David took over Jerusalem and made it his capital, the priesthood of God Most High now belongs to David and to all of his successors. So yes, Jesus may not be a Levitical priest, but the author is saying that's okay. 
He's of a more superior order. And that's what the author of Hebrews goes on to, to prove in chapter 7, that, that priests of Levi ought to show deference to priests of Melchizedek. Now, we don't need to really go into that argument right now. We don't have the time for that. But the main point here is that Jesus is superior over the entire Levitical priesthood, including the high priests. Jesus, the great high priest, doesn't serve merely in an earthly temple. It says that that he passed through the heavens. And he carries out his priestly role before the very presence of God. The high priests of old, they merely served among earthly symbols and earthly representations of heavenly realities. These are realities that Jesus actually deals with. So scripture tells us that in the temple in Jerusalem, it was designed with this this central room that, that, that was made of a, of, a, of a perfect cubic dimension. It was called the Holy of Holies. And in it housed the, the ancient Ark of the Covenant. It was where God's manifestation of his earthly presence, his Shekinah glory would reside there in the Holy of Holies. And Scripture tells us that the entrance to the Holy of Holies was blocked by a very thick curtain. And only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest was allowed to pass through that curtain and serve before the very mercy seat of God. The mercy seat was essentially the golden cover of the ark uh, where there were two cherubim hammered out, two golden cherubim hammered out on this seat, and the glory of God was said to rest between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And so just think, think about this. Think about how much better Jesus is. The high priest of old would pass through the curtain and serve in the Holy of Holies for only a few minutes and only once a year. But our great high priest passed through the heavens, not just curtains, but the very heavens to serve before God's actual throne of grace. And he remains there, not just for a few moments, but forever. He ever lives to intercede for us. As we explained before, the author is writing Hebrews. He is writing this book to a congregation that has converted out of Judaism that is being now persecuted for their newfound Christian faith. They were under extreme pressure and temptation to revert back to their former Judaism, to go back to the synagogue, go back to the temple, to return to priests and and to all the sacrifices because it would be that much safer. All the persecution would stop if they just reverted back. But the author of Hebrews is trying to say in many different ways, why would you do that? Why would you fall away from Jesus and fall back to the temple and to all of its priests? Why would you do that when you have a far better high priest? Look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
let us hold fast our confession. You have this better priest. Hold on to him. Don't let go. Now look, I, I know when you're in the middle of a spiritual winter, when a spiritual blizzard has blown in, it is, it is hard to keep a firm grasp on your faith. Your fingers feel frozen. You're not sure if you can keep your grip any longer. But friend, I urge you to hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to the gospel that you profess to believe in. But you say, that's the problem. That's the problem. I don't know if I believe in it any longer. My, my faith is so weak, I'm, I'm not sure if I have enough faith to be saved. Well, that reminds me of, a, of an illustration that Tim Keller has in his book, Reason for God, about, about falling off of a high cliff. Imagine you're tumbling down a cliff, but you happen to see a branch sticking out of the side. Now, it's strong enough to support your weight. It's your only hope of salvation, but, but how, how can it save you? Well, if you're filled with fears and uncertainties about this branch so that you don't actually reach out and grab it, well, then, yeah, you're a goner. But if you're filled with fears and uncertainties and yet you reach out and grab that branch anyways, if you hold fast, you're saved. Keller says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. I'd rather have weak faith in a strong branch than strong faith in a weak branch. And so in the same way, I'd rather, have, I'd rather have weak faith in a strong and better high priest than to be utterly convinced in lesser saviors and false gods. So friend, no matter how you feel, hold fast to Jesus. No matter how weak and feeble your grip is, hold fast. Don't let go. And I believe that what will help you do that is for us to go on further and, and to see just exactly what makes Jesus such a strong branch, what makes him such a better high priest. And it's not because just of what order of priest he's from. Jesus is a great high priest because of what he actually accomplished in his priestly service. This is our second point here, that Jesus is the high priest who sacrificed for us. As mentioned earlier, the high priest has one distinctive role when it comes to sacrificing. He is to perform the necessary sacrifices on the day of atonement. And on that special day, the entire nation of Israel sought atonement for all the sins that they have committed throughout the course of that year. And on that day, 
the high priest would finally enter the Holy of Holies. And it was, it was a most dangerous task. We're told in Exodus chapter 28 that the high priest was fitted with special garments, garments that had little golden bells attached to the hem of his robe. Some scholars think that those jingling bells were there to signal to his colleagues who were waiting outside that the high priest was still alive as he jingled along. He was still ministering for them within the Holy of Holies. The high priest had the most dangerous job in Israel. If he could make it into the Holy of Holies without dying, he would first take the blood of a bull to make atonement for his own sins. And then, then he would take the blood of a goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God and thereby symbolically covering our sin. He would secure forgiveness for the sins of the people. And that's why, of course, this was the most important day in the entire Jewish calendar. It was the day your sins could actually be atoned for, the day you could actually be forgiven by God. It was the most special day. But the fact that it showed up on the calendar every year proved that the Day of Atonement was insufficient to deal with sin. The blood of bulls and goats were not enough. Not enough to fully and finally take away sin. Friends, that's why they needed a better high priest. One who offers a better sacrifice than bull and goats that can put away sin once for all. And that is exactly how Jesus is described for us here in the book of Hebrews. He is described as this better, this great high priest who passes through the heavens and ministers forever in the heavenly throne room before the very presence of God. I want you to turn with me just a few chapters over to chapter 9 and just read about, about how he is, he is described for us in this better way. Look at chapter 9, verse 24 and I'm going to read verses 24 to 26. And just listen to this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's the better sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself. He shed his own blood in our place. He bore our sins upon himself, putting them away once for all. You know, after a, a, a Levitical high priest finished his work, he could walk out of the temple and tell people, I have made the requisite sacrifices on your behalf. Now let us, with confidence, go home. 
knowing that we've been forgiven until we gather again next year at the next Day of Atonement. But Jesus, Jesus can walk out of the heavenly temple and tell his people, I have made the requisite sacrifices on your behalf. Now come inside. Come inside with me and draw near to the throne of grace yourself. Just just look again at the command in verse 16 of our passage. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, no one spoke like that? No one would have dared to draw near to the Holy of Holies, definitely not with confidence. No one had confidence to draw near to God, only only the fear of certain death. I think Christians fail to recognize just how dangerous it is to draw near to God's presence. We just take it for granted. But the Bible is replete with warnings. Remember when the Israelites reached Mount Sinai, the glory of God appeared upon the mountaintop. And the people were forbidden to go up and meet with God because it wasn't safe. And they were fine with that. They were okay with it because they heard the peals of thunder. They saw the, 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 thick, the clouds of thick darkness and, and, and the consuming fire on the mountaintop. And they had no interest in drawing near. They were sure they would die. Now just listen to what they said to Moses. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Listen to what they say. Now therefore, why should we die for this great fire, this fire on top of the mountain that they're they're seeing? This great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near. Talking to Moses. You go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And so they're begging Moses. They are begging Moses to draw near for them. You go be a priest for us. You, you go and, 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 and you go to God, and then you come back, and you tell us what God has to say. You, you come back, and you tell us what it's like to be in his presence. But there is no way that you're going to get a, a regular Israelite to draw near to God himself or herself. Chapter 4, verse 16, this command here would sound as strange to them as telling them to draw near to a blazing fire. Let us, with confidence, draw near to a live volcano. Let us, with confidence, draw near to a Category 5 tornado. That's what it sounds like to them. That's what it sounds like to tell them to draw near with confidence to God Almighty. Do you get that? Friends, 
until you read this passage from that perspective, the full significance of what Jesus' high priestly work has accomplished will be lost on you. You won't realize how badly you still need a priest. Even today, even this very hour, you need a priest to represent you before God. But because of what this great high priest has accomplished, he can now turn to you and he can say, come with me. Come with me. Climb up the mountain with me and draw near to God yourself with me. The thunder is still there. The thick darkness, the consuming fire, they're all still there. He's still the same fearsome, omnipotent, holy God Almighty. But because Jesus shed his blood in our place, because he has put away our sins for good, we can then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. But I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're thinking, you don't understand, Pastor. My sin runs way too deep. My shame is is far too great. My, my, my temptations are far too strong. Yes, there might be hope for others. You know, you, you, other people here, yeah, there's hope for them, but, but, but not me. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what I'm going through. And perhaps you're right. I don't understand. But there is one who does. There is one who knows exactly what you went through, who knows exactly what you're going through, one who identifies with your pain, with your weakness, with the temptations that are plaguing you. He's the high priest who sympathizes with us. This is our third and final point. The high priest who sympathizes with you. You know, there are two things that make for a good high priest. Two things that you're looking for when you're looking for a priest. You're looking for someone who is like you and yet unlike you at the exact same time. You want a priest who can walk the hard path with you so that he can sympathize with you. And yet, and yet you want a priest who's off the path, who's already reached the destination so that he can help you get there. So you want to be able, on one hand, to bear your soul to your priest. You want to be able to pour out your heart to speak of, of unfulfilled longings, to speak of your loneliness and disappointments, and for him to actually get it, for him to understand. You, 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 that's why you want a priest who's been there with you. And yet, at the same time, you don't want to bear your soul to your priest only to have him respond by sharing his own set of problems. You're looking for a priest, not an accountability partner. You don't want a priest who's too much like you, who's so like you that he can't actually help you. What you want is a priest who is like you and unlike you at the exact same time. And so look with me. Look with me at chapter chapter. Um, 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted 
as we are, yet without sin. As we are, yet without sin. Like us, yet unlike us. Do you see? You see how Jesus is the perfect priest? The reason he can sympathize with us is because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. He knows. He knows how hard it is to walk the straight and narrow. He knows what you're going through. But you're probably wondering, how can, how can that be? How, how does Jesus know what I am going through in every respect? He, he's, he's never been through a bad breakup like I have. He's never had a miscarriage like I have. He's never been tempted to cheat on his finals like I have. He hasn't felt the lure of, of pornography like I have. How, how does he know? There's no way he could have been through those things. How does he know? And you're right. He hasn't been through those things. He's only lived, he only lived 33 years, and so that means he never experienced the unique trials and temptations of an elderly man. You could say the same thing about the unique trials and temptations of a single woman or a married person. He hasn't personally experienced those things. But you have to realize, you have to realize that there's the surface of an experience, but then there's the core of an, ex of an experience. And on the surface, yes, all of our experiences are different, they're unique, but at the core, every experience is going to touch on the same basic human emotions. And when it comes to difficult, painful experiences at the core, you're going to find weakness, suffering, disappointment, confusion, abandonment, loneliness, betrayal, sadness. And of those raw human emotions, Jesus is familiar. He knows them all too well. Jesus knows weakness and suffering. He knows abandonment and loneliness. He knows betrayal and sadness. Most commentators believe that chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7 is actually a reference to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was betrayed and arrested. Just look with me there, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. But as the story goes, though his father heard him, his father didn't save him from death. He didn't let the cup of wrath pass over like he prayed. Instead, he asked his son to drink it down to the dregs for us. And that tells me, that tells me that Jesus knows what it's like to cry out to God for relief and to not have your prayers answered. Jesus knows what unanswered prayers feel like. Jesus knows what the silence of God sounds like. Jesus went through a spiritual winter himself. He knows what forsakenness 
feels like. He felt it in the garden. He felt it hanging on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what you're going through. So for those of you who are in that spiritual winter of the soul, just know that you have a sympathetic high priest. And take encouragement in in this. Take encouragement in the fact that even the Son of God had to go through a season of darkness, a season of coldness and forsakenness. And yet, that experience was no indication of him having fallen out of God's will or having lost God's love. It was the exact opposite. That winter was God's will. It was the will of the Father, and he was sustained through it by his Father's love. So Jesus gets it. He's like you, which allows him to sympathize with you. But but he's also unlike you in that he never sinned, but always perfectly obeyed. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that we're told in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that by his perfect obedience, Jesus became, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he's not just, he's not just a priest who sympathizes. He's a God who saves. The source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so remember how this this whole passage boils down to one primary command that we ought to obey. That's to not give up. Don't give up. Draw near to him. Even if it feels like you're in the dead of winter. Hold fast to him. Even even when your grip is is weak, and trust. Friends, just trust that he is holding fast to you. Trust that he has drawn near to you. Because isn't that what Christmas is all about? 